The genius and power of the internet can't be overstated. This has started revolutions and shine light on the inner workings of our government. Our natural unalienable rights are now considered to be a dispensation of government. And freedom has never been so close to slipping from our grasp as it is at this moment. We also have access to information like never before. But at the same time, so much of the information is intended to deflect, confuse, and upset you. Made by people who want to profit off you or outright control you. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All of this is exactly why we need to know history and philosophy. We need to understand where we came from so we can know where we're going. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be the first one going back to a more monologue style. I'm done with the interviews to introduce season two and now we can dig into some specific aspects and parallels and comparisons between the time period of the Reformation and modern times as well as some other relevant examples. So the first episode here is going to be on roughly the idea of the state and how the governments, the official organized centralized governments reacted and what that looked like in that time period and today. And looking at these kinds of things from a more macro view of how societies are affected and some specifics even in how things play out and some of the more conceptual aspects of that. So we're going to talk a little bit about how ideas and movements Form and evolve and how they generally play out. Some examples of that, we'll talk about some of the treaties of the time of the Reformation and some modern aspects that are similar. And we'll also talk about some of the ways that leaders and the church and the state respond to different things that happen within society and to some of these movements and how the people also react to the way that the state, the church, whatever the institution is, influences these things as well. My goal is to make this a fairly short episode. Uh, Like I've said in the previous episodes, I am trying to condense things down even further so that it is more consumable to the average person who may not have an hour at a time to dedicate or longer, depending on the episode. So that's the goal. We will see how that goes. Now, the first thing I wanted to talk about was ideologies and The movements of modern times, as well as the time of the Reformation, they were built around an ideology. And I've also talked about how, in general, any movement is not going to gain traction unless people are rallied around a certain common goal or a certain ideology. That's a necessary component to something being successful and having influence on a mass scale. That's also a necessary component of any organized society working well together and running smoothly. There has to be this common bond between the masses, and an ideology is the way this is usually presented in history and in modern times. Now, with these ideologies... 
they usually begin very pure and idealistic to begin with. They are generally based on ideas that most everybody can get behind and that are based on some philosophical concepts that are very sound, that are very logical, that are very relevant and very needed. And that's usually how these ideologies begin. So when we talk about this, this can apply to the time period of the Reformation, the beginning of that, and those movements that were against the current establishment, the current church, and the way things were done, those usually began very idealistically and through very pure motivations. And then, in general, these ideologies are usually co-opted, corrupted, and abused. That's just the way things play out. And so if we can recognize that, then that definitely helps us to be able to identify what's happening in the evolution of any current ideologies that are playing out, which uh, we can point some of those out. That's fairly obvious. Now, when we look at the time of the Reformation, the ideology was one of getting back to what the Bible preaches. They were very big on that. They saw that the church was corrupt, that oftentimes even the church leaders were living in a way that was very contradictory to what the scriptures said, and the average person didn't really even know much about what the Bible actually said, uh, mainly because they couldn't read it. It wasn't written in their common language that they could read, if they could even read, and in addition, they didn't have mass printing, so it wasn't like anyone could get a Bible. They were very expensive, they were all hand-copied, and it was a pretty big deal. And so, there was this ideology that started to move up, this Reformation movement that began where people, usually theologians and the more educated people of the time, and generally the more elite classes, the higher educated people, were educated in Christian universities. They were very religious. These were the theologians and the great thinkers of the time, and that's generally the way that it played out and why these types of ideologies really gained steam, because these are the things that the educated class was wrestling with, and they were dealing with. And it was not uncommon for people to bring up some of the issues that were going on in the church. It was fairly obvious by that time. There had been many movements prior and many around the same time as Martin Luther, and these finally really gained traction and took hold and took off at one point when you had this confluence of the technology and the social milieu and things like this all coming together, and it really got going. But to begin with, again, it was very pure, very idealistic. The idea was that, hey, the Bible says this, this, and this. The church is not practicing these things. We need to change these practices in the church, and then we will be good to go. That's that's the goal. That's all we need to do. We'll reform these certain aspects of the universal established church, the Catholic church, and then we will be good and we'll be on track with what the Bible teaches. Well, as you know, this wasn't the way it really played out in the end. That's how it began. These ideologies always begin this way. When you look at just about any government that forms, 
it's the same way. The United States government is the one that I have done the most research on historically. And when the government was formed out of the colonies, you had the Articles of Confederation originally. And when the Constitution was made and the Federalists basically convinced people to vote for the Constitution, set up a more centralized and more powerful centralized government, then when this happened... This originally was out of more pure and idealistic motives. A lot of those founding fathers, even if I very much disagree with that move away from the more pure libertarian motives to um, more of a, I don't know, small state ideal, uh, I may disagree with that, but the people that wanted a small state, they were fairly idealistic and they had more pure motivations. They did want a centralized state, but they also wanted to make sure that that state was small and very controlled, very limited, that it was kept in check. That's what they were arguing for, if you read the Federalist Papers. And that is not the way it's played out. If you look at the American government today, uh, there is really no easy comparison between nowadays and then. Another movement that is even more modern would be the internet. So when the internet started, this was a very pure and idealistic movement that started. Now, I'm not talking about the creation of the internet out of DARPA and that whole uh, aspect of things. We won't talk about that part. But when it became more mainstream and the internet uh, started up, you had the World Wide Web and people were beginning to get connected all around the world, this started off as something that was more pure and idealistic. People thought that we would all start connecting together, we would be sharing information, we'd be able to learn, we would be able to understand other people from other places and other cultures, and there will be this new realm of peaceful education and understanding and cooperation, and all this would be you know, great. It would be very pure and idealistic. That was the idea. And then fast forward a few decades to now, and that's not really the way that that movement has turned out. Yes, the technology of the internet has that potential. And yes, there are still aspects and there are still corners of the internet that are still basically living out these pure and idealistic ideologies. If you look at some of the blockchain space, that's a good representation of that playing out right now in the early stages and still doing well. But at the same time, uh, blockchain also gives you another good example when you have the Libra cryptocurrency that Facebook is developing. The central banks all around the world are working on developing their own digital currencies. There is talk of a digital dollar coming out of the Federal Reserve. All of these things are happening, and those are very far from the pure and idealistic um, ideologies of the original inventors and developers behind most of the early cryptocurrencies. If you look at Satoshi with Bitcoin and his ideal, that was something where anybody could have access. There was no exclusion. You totally owned your money and controlled your money. You didn't need any third-party institution. You could transact directly between people just like you can with cash, but do it digitally in a way that is even more secure than cash. 
and a monetary system was built around that that would prevent things like manipulation and inflation and creating new Bitcoin, new money out of nothing that couldn't happen. And this was, again, a very pure and idealistic um, ideology that backed up the Bitcoin project, and that still does exist. But again, as I've mentioned, uh, these ideologies do get corrupted, they do get co-opted, they do get abused, and we are seeing the beginnings of that with governments claiming to create their own new digital currencies that are, oh, these are cryptocurrencies, they're built on the blockchain, they're decentralized. And if you know the definition of any of those words, um, yeah, there are some definite disagreements that me and many others would have with that. And so those are some more modern and developing examples. And we can point this out anytime you see a movement and ideology starting to take hold or starting to get started and getting created, we can see likely what's going to happen with that because it plays out time and time and time again. In general, when you have movements against authority, they then end up being co-opted by the authority. So like in this blockchain example where the idea of Bitcoin and early cryptocurrencies was to create a monetary system outside of state systems and outside of state control and state censorship. And what do we see? States trying to come up with their own cryptocurrencies. That's the way it happens. Reformation. With the Reformation, that was an anti-establishment movement against the establishment of the day, the church. And what happened? Well, that turned into the Thirty Years' War, where you had a new church break off, the Church of England, and you had uh, the different branches of the church. You had the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church, and they're fighting against each other. And then you even get these third parties, these um, people coming out of the class of the nobility and the beginnings of statehood and nation states, and it gets really ugly. And that's unfortunately the way things go. I mentioned the Articles of Confederation. If you look at that movement, that was a movement against authority. They believed in natural law in that people had these natural rights that are innate in human beings. And in order to live that out, especially in a political system, you can't control other human beings. That's kind of the whole point is that I have a right to control my own life. Well, there was a big shift between the Articles of Confederation, where everybody was independent, each colony had their own constitution, they had their own laws, they had their own rulers, they had their own systems, they had their own way of doing things. And then this anti-establishment movement that didn't want a centralized source in charge of everything turned into the Constitution, where you end up with this one centralized federal power that did have control over all of the others. And at least it did start off in a way that the state still had a lot of rights and a lot of freedoms and um, a lot of room to move, so to say. But even so, it was much less than they had in the Articles of Confederation and the original movement of the colonies, the Revolutionary War, that was an anti-establishment movement. And what happened? Well, the establishment ended up taking over and creating a brand new establishment out of that movement and that ideology. That's the way things go. We can see that in current times with something in the more recent past, like the Occupy movement. If you heard of Occupy Wall Street, 
street and movements like that. Those ended up being co-opted by um, people with certain other ideologies and nothing really came of that. The same is true with the Tea Party political movement in the U.S. You had these Republicans largely that were trying to be very strict on lowering the national debt, lowering government spending, decreasing the size of government in general, and they were being very strict on this. They had this ideology they wanted to follow, and they were starting to implement it. They grouped together. You had many different congressmen and senators that were behind this movement. And what happened? Well, the final result of that was Donald Trump getting elected in a way, so to say. I won't say that Donald Trump is a true Tea Party member. Uh, I am not sure what he has said about the Tea Party. But in general, you had this anti-establishment movement of moving against the state and against a growing state and instead trying to shrink it and trying to minimize its role. And instead, this anti-establishment fervor ended up getting Donald Trump elected, and he has spent more than any other president. He has increased the size of our military and uh, continued the wars in the Middle East and all kinds of stuff that are basically the exact opposite of this original anti-establishment movement. And again, that's the way things go. We see that with the decentralized internet has changed and morphed from an anti-establishment movement where everybody has access to all information to an oligarchy of control and data collection by big tech. Really, you have Facebook and YouTube owned by Alphabet, who owns Google. Um, I guess it gets a little complicated as you go, but you've got YouTube, you've got Twitter, you've got Facebook, you've got all these platforms that are starting to really do a lot of censorship and removing articles, removing videos, censoring certain things. It is no longer this ideal, the way it started out, an anti-establishment movement where we all have free speech, we all have free access to information, and that was a really big deal. That was the ideal. And instead, that got co-opted and created a brand new establishment that took control instead of leaving it all free and open. And that's the way things played out. Typically, these types of movements, these ideologies, they start off very peaceful with a peaceful revolution. And then they are co-opted and corrupted into a power grab by whoever's in charge or wants to be in charge. You can go all the way back to the times of Jesus and the beginning of Christianity with the early disciples. When they started this was a very peaceful movement. The New Testament and the writings of the early Christians were very big on being peaceful and nonviolent. They didn't believe that someone should be a soldier or be a gladiator or uh, take part in any of these violent activities. And then you move into the time of post-Constantine when the Christian religion was basically forced on the entire Roman Empire and wars were being fought in the name of Christianity, go all the way to the Crusades. And this is something that did not play out the way it began. It turned from a peaceful revolution to an excuse for control and for war. It's the exact opposite. That's the way these things go. You've got the Reformation to the Thirty Years' War that I mentioned earlier. The Reformation was a very peaceful movement. The Thirty Years' War, not so peaceful at all. You can look at the hippie movement of the 60s. That was a very peaceful movement. It was all peace and love, man. And 
And then that turned into really the drug culture that ended up being full of gangs and violence. And that's kind of what came out of that. And if you look at how that got corrupted and co-opted, you can look at the role of uh, agencies such as the CIA and groups like that that had a lot of influence there in uh, changing that culture from the peaceful hippies to the drug culture and cartels that we have today. Pretty ugly. If you look at the environmentalist movement, which uh, kind of came out of and related to the hippie movement of the 60s, that was something that started off as a peaceful revolution that we're going to take care of the earth and we're not going to destroy different people groups or take over governments to do this. What we're going to do is simply spread the word and uh, practice these certain things like recycling and uh, making good use of the natural resources and limiting pollution, these kinds of things. And we're going to make statements. We're going to educate people. That's how that movement started. And now what form is environmentalism taking? It's sustainable development. It's the sustainable development movement currently mainly headed by the UN and groups like the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, different groups like this that are pushing for sustainable development. And what does that mean? Well, to an extent, it relates to the more pure and idealistic environmentalism of the historical uh, flavor, at least the modern historical flavor there, of just taking care of the planet. But instead, that has been co-opted into a movement to really redo our entire economic system to really change and shift the power structure globally, not even just nationally. And you have these unelected technocrats in places like the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, um, different groups of this nature, these big worldwide foundations like the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, all these names I've mentioned many times on the show. Um, now, they are using this movement of sustainable development of originally environmentalism to basically take more control, to make more money. Uh, think about that. How did Bill Gates leave one of the largest companies in the world, Microsoft, and start a charity foundation and his net worth continued to exponentially rise after he left a for-profit, very successful business leading it and started a charity organization where he gave away millions of dollars and somehow was still able to increase his net wealth every single year. That just seems um, a little iffy there. Uh, maybe he was using that money to benefit certain investments that he had and certain goals that he had. You can look at the Rockefeller Foundation for kind of the template for how that works out. And that's the way these things play out and are playing out. One way that these ideological movements are taken over is by creating a false dichotomy. And that happened with the Reformation very clearly, where when Martin Luther finally realized that there was not going to be any reformation of the Catholic Church, they were not going to change, there had to be a split. It was no longer reforming them, it was splitting from them, and you end up with Catholicism versus Lutheranism, and you had the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church, and then that ended up being the dichotomy. Now, the Lutheran Church by modern standards, at least, with all the different denominations of Christianity that exist today, 
the Lutherans and the Catholics are actually very similar in a lot of their beliefs, a lot of their theology, and a lot of their practices and liturgy and how they have a service. They look very similar, especially compared to all the other denominations that exist today. But it was a really big deal to split from the universal Catholic Church and create your own. And uh, to disagree from that, there, there were some very huge implications theologically in your religion and your status as a Christian, uh, whether or not you even had that status anymore. That was a big deal. But my point is that these were the only two options that really were given. You were either a Catholic or a Lutheran. You also had movements like the Anabaptists. I've mentioned them before, too, but they really got left out. You end up with this single issue of uh, Martin Luther's opinions and his perspectives on what the Bible said versus the official Catholic Church and what they said. And you had these Anabaptists that were saying, wait, wait a minute, neither one of you are actually reading this and living out what it says. And they had totally different opinion, totally different perspective and interpretation of this, but they were largely just ignored. So as the Anabaptists were pointing out that the whole structure of the system is faulty. There are some faulty assumptions here and faulty practices, just creating a new establishment that looks really similar but changes these two things. You know, that's not going to fix things. The structure in the system itself is what's wrong here. And uh, yeah, nothing really came of that um, to a degree. There are still different Anabaptist movements that are in existence today and are doing very well. But if you look at the denominations that exist worldwide, the vast majority are either uh, based off the Catholic Church or based off the Protestant Church is what that ended up being um, with the split with the Lutherans. And so the Anabaptists largely got left out. Now, if you look at modern times and modern politics in America specifically, you typically have the Democrat or the Republican parties, and that's about it. You've got the Democrats on the left, more uh, neoliberal and progressive, and the Republicans on the right that are supposed to be more classically liberal and more libertarian-leaning originally. And so now it ends up being that both parties are for growing the state. They just argue over how do you implement that power and how do you spend the money. That's about it. And there is no talk of, oh, well, the entire structure of our system is corrupt and faulty and it needs to be changed if we really want to make a difference. No, no. It's you either pick Democrat or you pick Republican. You pick left, you pick right. And that's the only option given. It's this false dichotomy. Where are the libertarians. The Libertarian Party does exist, but it's largely ignored. It really has no influence. And they are the ones that are saying, hey, the whole system is corrupt. There's too much power here in the hands of too few people without enough check on their power. And just to begin with, all these powers that they have, they go against the idea of natural law and freedoms and liberty that this country was founded on. And so this system needs to change. But no, they largely get ignored. You can look at the same thing with a central bank. You basically have the idea of, oh, well, you can either have higher interest rates that we'll implement, or we can implement uh, lower interest rates. And those are your two options. That's your false dichotomy there. There is no option for saying, oh, 
oh, well, the fiat money system has some problems. Maybe we should go back to a hard money. Maybe we should go back to something that's actually backed by gold, let's say. That's uh, one that historically plays out well. Uh, No, no, that's not really being considered. It's this false dichotomy that's being created instead. With the education system um, in many countries around the world, it ends up being, well, we need more money and we're going to fund this program or this type of education or this curriculum and that's going to make the difference or we're going to hire different teachers or pay the teachers more or whatever the case may be. It's basically how do you allocate the funds that we're spending towards education and how do you shift those funds around and we can argue about oh we're going to spend it here spend it there or we're going to go with this option or that option and largely the idea of hey our entire education system is totally screwed up and needs to be changed uh, no that's not really being considered it's not really an issue of hey we should go with these alternatives although they do exist in the US we've got charter schools and private schools we have some alternative options even homeschooling I've talked about all these things before and they do exist but are they getting a lot of attention from just the mainstream masses well no not really they're too busy arguing about whether you're going to pay your teachers more or improve the buildings? Are you going to uh, focus more on the humanities and the arts? Or are you going to focus more on STEM subjects? And that's where the argument goes. And again, all of these things have their place. But if you have a system and a structure that totally needs to change, then arguing over these little details isn't really going to do anything. I mean, it'll do something, but it's not going to make the changes that are needed to create a well-functioning system. That's not what's going to happen. There is a similar argument going on today with the police. We have these worldwide protests against police brutality where a man was murdered and there are riots and protests going on all over the world, some peaceful, some not, and it's this big deal. And there's a phrase that's going around now that where people are calling to defund the police. Now, in general, this is something I can really get behind. Let's no, not just defund the police. Let's defund the entire state and you know, work on the system as a whole. But no, that's not the way the argument's going. It's that we need to defund the police and uh, have a new police department that takes care of these things or defund the police and just not have anybody filling that role at all in society. Yeah, that's not going to go over very well, I can tell you that. And so it ends up being this false dichotomy. Again, it's either, is it going to be national police or local police? Or is it going to be the current police department? Or are we going to just fire all those people and start a new police department with a few of the regulations changed? Or are we going to either have no police or the current police? These are all false dichotomies. There, There are other options. And we can point out the fact that the system itself is designed for failure. Uh, there it's, it's a poor incentive model, just like it is with everything involving the state. You have this problem where individual police officers don't have a lot of incentive to do their job well and to do the right thing because they've got a police union that'll back them up. They've got their partners and fellow officers that will walk that thin blue line and make sure that they don't rat out their fellow officers. They'll back them up. And it's very hard to get fired. It's very hard to get fired from a government job just in general, much less one that has a very strong union behind them and this culture of making sure you back up your fellow workers, your fellow policemen. And so 
the individual police officers don't have a whole lot of strong incentives for doing the right thing. And what about the department? What incentives do they have? Well, virtually none. You get a little bit of bad PR, but what's the effect of that? As worst case, the chief loses their job. I mean, I don't know. They're, that's about it. It's not like um, the police department is not going to get any more customers, and instead the customers are going to go to a rival police department. That's that's not the way these things work. There aren't very strong incentives here. I mean, again, you even have laws in place like qualified immunity, where police officers oftentimes aren't even liable for the damages that. Th- that are their fault, that they are should be responsible for. They cause damages, but then they're not liable for them. It's not their fault. We can't, you know, sue them. We can't blame them because they're they have immunity from these things legally. You have other things like no knock raids, you've got the war on drugs, you've got all of these policy issues that create more problems. They create more criminals. They create more conflict. They create more violence. And they're just going to inherently. That's the way these policies play out. That's just the way it is. And that's a problem with the system. That's a problem with the structure itself. It's not just picking one of these dichotomies that don't really exist here of either we have police or we don't. Um, that Those aren't the only two options. And getting rid of the police as a whole doesn't fix the problem. Just like keeping the current system does not fix the problem. Even if you change a few of these minor policy issues, um, that can help, yes, but that's not going to fix the problem. And I've talked about Fabian socialism before and Oftentimes in the Fabian strategy, this is a strategy that's implemented. If there's a policy that is desired to go through, instead of just presenting the policy and having the option be, do we have this policy or not? This is a brand new thing. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. Let's figure out what its merits are, what its shortcomings are, you know, that kind of thing. Instead, the Fabian strategy is to create a new false dichotomy. And instead of just presenting this one policy and debating it, you present two policies that both accomplish the same thing, just in different degrees with some minor tweaks. And so you get somebody from one side of the political spectrum to propose, hey, let's spend $5 million towards this certain goal. And then someone on the other side of the political spectrum proposes a bill at the same time that says, no, let's spend $10 million towards that same goal. But with this uh, one little check here to make sure that the funds are allocated appropriately. And then you debate between the two. And that's the false dichotomy that gets set up. And so this can be used as a strategy to create a false dichotomy like this and then to use that to push whatever it is that you actually want to go through. That's something that does happen. That's something that is used. And you could apply that aspect of it to many of these different examples as well. Now, contrary to what I would normally do and what I kind of want to do, I am going to cut myself off there and just stop. I have a page of notes that I have barely gotten halfway through for this episode and I am going to attempt to really try to stick to my ideal here of doing shorter episodes. So I'm just going to cut it here and I'll pick right back up with some very similar themes for the next episode. I would definitely like to hear from you and hear what you think about this, about uh, having episodes roughly this length that are more like 30 minutes, 45 minutes or so. Is this something that you like? Is it okay? Do you absolutely hate it? Do you maybe not like it very much, but it's not too bad? You know, whatever. Just give me your opinion. You can send me a message on Twitter or ideally 
email me at ourfoundations at protonmail.com. And the link for that is in the show notes as well. You don't have to remember this, but please do so. Give me some feedback here. I'm trying to change things up a little bit. And I know in general with everything, some people like it, some people don't. But if I get a lot of strong feelings one way or the other, then I will definitely adjust according to what you, the listener, want to hear. That's kind of the whole point of doing a podcast is delivering something that you are interested in and that you, the listener, will consider. So please help me in doing so and meeting your demands. Now that does wrap up everything for this and we will pick up next time. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your support for the reviews and the ratings and the patrons especially. And you can find links in the show notes for the website, for the Patreon page. There is extra content on Patreon. There are some lists on the website that might be something that you may be interested in. There's the Twitter page that I do for this podcast specifically, the email address, all of it's in the show notes. So please see that for any further information. And other than that, I will come back to you next week. I hope that you have enjoyed this and will enjoy the following episode. Give me a few episodes and then let me know what you think about this new format and about what's going on here for this second half of season two so that if there are aspects you really don't like or that you want changed, if I get enough feedback for that, I will do so and you will get what you want and I will continue to get you as a listener, which is what I want. So please do so. Give me feedback. That always does help. And with that, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.